Welcome back to the Caught Red Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Jesse Light. I'm Megan Light. We are just two dog lovers talking true crime, horror movies, and most likely our dogs too. First off, we want to thank everybody that reached out and wished us a happy one-year anniversary for the podcast. And before we get started with our case today, I had a minor update to our episode from last week. Oh, really? Yeah. Holding out on me. Well, if you haven't listened, there's 39-year-old mother of three, Maya Miliete, was last seen going into her home in Chula Vista, California on January 7th, 2021, and she has been missing ever since. Her husband, Larry Miliete, was arrested and charged with her murder. He awaits his trial, which has been delayed till January of 2024. Well, their home was in jeopardy of going into foreclosure, and Maya's sister, Mary Chris, had petitioned the court asking a conservator to facilitate the sale of the home. Well, this past Thursday, Judge Alvarez granted her request. The home is estimated to be worth about $1.2 million. Shut up. And they've already got like $600,000 in equity on the property. So, but they're like eight payments behind. Like they hadn't, they went a whole year without making any payments. And apparently there's a buyer who is ready to purchase the home. Not sure how much. I think that was undisclosed. Once it is bought though, the money from the sale will go into like a blocked account. For the kids? Well, or just. See, neither side will get access to the money until they figure out, like, how much belongs to Maya Miliete's side and how much belongs oh. to Larry's side. And there will be another hearing for that in December. So, Do you think the person that wants to buy it is into true crime or something? Oh, he's, like, just getting up all these houses from murder cases? Something like that. Who knows? I mean, what, cause There's like, probably what if somebody she was, like that out there. What if she was killed in that house and he's just like, I'll take it? You never know. You know, Maya's children remain in the custody of Larry's parents for now. They're moving into a home in the Chula Vista area so they can keep going to the same schools. That's good. A little consistency in their life. Yeah. Not much information there, but still, if anything comes up, we'll be sure to let y'all know. Did you have anything else to add? Books you've read or anything like that? Oh, Lord. I mean, yeah. I've read how many lately? (laughs) But, uh... I'd have to make like a list and yeah, and talk about them. Maybe next time. All right. I'll do that next time. Well, Megan's got the case for us today. You ready to do this thing? Always. Short and sweet. Well, we'll see about that. I do only have like a couple of sources. So courtlistener.com, which was like for case studies, for cases. My favorite part. Yeah, your favorite thing. Randall Roberts, which is a funeral home, and then the main one, like last time I did a story, it's a book, no surprise there, Murder in Circe by Deanna Hamby Nall, and then Mike S. Allen. And that's Circe, guys, not Circe. Yeah. And it's Saline County, not... Saline? Saline County. (laughs) What do you get when you hire a Eugene to commit murder, love? Starting off with a riddle? I guess, yeah. 
what do you get when you hire a Eugene to commit a murder? Uh-huh. Uh, somebody's going to fuck up something. I don't know. Yeah, you get today's story, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Really wasn't that big of a riddle or anything. I just thought I would ask you. Some dumb shit's about to happen. A little bit. Yeah. I am taking us to the smallish town in Arkansas, the holy town of Searcy. And I have mentioned it one other time because Searcy is where Mary Lee Orsini was born. But that was the only thing I said about the town. I think we mentioned Harding at one point. I don't know if that was I think the case. that was also with. Mary Lee? Yeah, Harding Academy there in Searcy. It's an older town in our state. It goes back to the 1830s when it was incorporated. It was named for Richard Searcy, who was a circuit judge out of Tennessee. As of 2023, there's about 23,000 residents. It's a fairly quiet town with multiple colleges like Harding or Arkansas State University has a little remote campus there. They've got private and public schools and I thought this was kind of cool. So uh, in 2019, there there was this show on Hulu called Small Business Revolution. And Cersei was the winner of this small business revolution on Main Street. And they were given $500,000 to renovate six small businesses. Now, some of those don't exist anymore. Huh. Well, now they got Whataburger. They got a neighborhood pet shop. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. where the one rescue Milo came from is they go to the neighborhood pet shop all the time. They got a really pretty barnuminium that I drive by like once a week that I always send a Snapchat to Megan. Like We got to get those floor plans. <laughs> yeah. All in all, Cersei's a great place to live. The crime rate is lower than the national average. It's safe. It's quaint, cozy. And the same could be said about it back in 1974, which is when our case will take place. Probably a few meth heads here and there, but... I mean, it's Arkansas. Yeah. (laughs) Back then, everyone knew just about everyone. It was an easygoing place to live, and then out of nowhere, there will be a murder. And it's so out of the blue, so unexpected that it rocked the town of Searcy, And it became known as the biggest news story of the year. It was known that every Wednesday evening, Fern Cohen Rogers would be at the Elks Club playing bridge. The night of September 25th was no different. 6 p.m. she went to go pick up her bridge partner. Fern was dressed to the nines. She had on a navy skirt, white blouse. She had on a gold necklace and this big old diamond ring. Fern is what you would picture as, like, the typical Southern woman. Her family was from an even smaller town, Kinsit. So she played bridge on Wednesdays and bingo on Fridays, probably? Maybe. She had just turned 68 the month prior, but she was ready to make the whole night all about bridge. Is that a card game? Yes. Okay. And it almost was the whole evening. One of the ladies that she plays with, That evening was walking to her car and she fell. So Fern and some of the other ladies gathered her up and they took her to the White County Hospital. Fern would later find out from her son, Dr. Porter Rogers Jr., that her friend had broken both of her wrists in the fall. By the time Fern arrived back at her home after dropping off another one of her friends, it was after midnight. And the 
Book had mentioned how Fern was going to take a day trip into Memphis the next day and asked her friend Alma, who she just dropped off, if she wanted to join. And Alma declined because she had an appointment at the beauty parlor the next day. And this reminds me of my bubby so much because my bubby, which is Yiddish for grandmother, for those who don't know, she had a little shop in the backyard where she would do her friend's hair. So it always used to smell like perming chemicals back there. Do you ever get a perm? No, <laughs> no. The next morning, September 26th, Betty Jean Ross, Betty Jean was also my bubby's name, by the way. Betty Jean Ross was getting ready to go to work. She'd just been hired on as the Rogers housekeeper a month or so beforehand. She lived in Heber Springs, which is right outside where we live. So she would typically carpool with this other couple, the Frenches, into work because they lived nearby as well. So they would carpool the 30 minutes, give or take, to go into Cersei. The Frenches also helped look after the Rogers house and their property for about 12 years or so at this point. Betty gives them a call to see what time to be ready and learn that there was going to be a delay due to the rain that morning. Not happy about this, Betty asked if they minded if she came by to get their set of keys because she didn't have her own yet. She wanted to start early so she could be back home by lunchtime. Betty arrived at the Rogers driveway at 8.30 and she let herself inside. This was an older house. It was built in 1925, and then the Rogers bought it in the early 40s. So it's no surprise that there was like a trick to open the back door. One must unlock the top lock, and then the bottom lock, you do it in the other order, and it won't budge. Probably had to jimmy it a little bit, too. A little little shimmy jimmy, yes. Yeah. Betty puts the Memphis paper she picked up from the driveway, put it on the table, and then she stopped for a moment to listen she didn't hear anyone or anything in the house. She figured she wouldn't see Dr. Porter Rogers Sr. because she rarely did, but she would normally see Fern. She saw that there was a hallway light left on from the night before. As she headed to turn that off, she decided she'd go to the front porch and get the paper from Little Rock. And it was there near the front door where she saw a pair of legs sticking out from the bottom of a navy skirt. Thinking... She must have fallen down the stairs. Betty hurried over to Fern and called 911. All she had to say was that she needed an ambulance at the Rogers home. After she hung up the phone, she goes back to Fern, and that's when she saw it. There was a pool of blood underneath Fern's head. Uh-oh. Everyone knew the Rogers because they were like the little town celebrities there in Cersei. Porter, Porter Sr., was a well-known and beloved town doctor. He had started a couple clinics and hospitals in the town. He had delivered the majority of the babies that lived in that town for years. The Rogers hosted many social gatherings in their beautiful home. The couple had married in 1932. They ended up having two children. One was Porter Jr., who followed in his father's footsteps going to medical school. They were the picture-perfect ideal couple. But like many stories that we've discussed, things aren't quite what they always appear to be. The couple had troubles over the years. The first being that a year into their marriage, so September 1933, Porter was indicted on charges of possession of counterfeit money. In November, he pleaded guilty and received three years. $50 bill. It's a $50 bill. <laughs> <laughs> 
Goonies reference, if you don't know. Oh, God. Somehow Porter was able to just be placed on probation for five years. The issue was, though, the medical board pulled his license when he entered that guilty plea. It would take a little over two years of fighting for his license to be reinstated. It pretty much came down to the fact that the courts had decided to not convict him, meaning there's no case, meaning there's nothing to base that suspension on. Obviously, following all this, the Rogers had to restart their lives. Porter opened his first clinic in the family three. Their son was two at the time, lived on the backside of that clinic. And then another setback happened when they moved into their first little family home. It caught on fire. So the next house they end up buying is the one that Fern is found dead in. Why did it catch on fire? It never said. Hmm. Hmm. Life was going pretty well at this point, and Porter decided to make a big purchase, a sanitarium. He renamed it the Porter Rogers Hospital, and it started to grow immediately. For the years to follow, he would slowly add more rooms and staff. Fern was staying busy as a stay-at-home mom. They had just had their second child, a girl named Anne, in 1944. Porter hired on Fern's sister-in-law. Her name is Helen Cohen, so Fern's brother's wife, to help manage the hospital. It was probably the first time in their lives, especially in their marriage, that the Rogers didn't have to worry about anything. Fern took care of the family. Porter took care of his patients. Porter had a soft spot for a lot of folks that he treated. He was allowing some to pay what they could when they could you know, small town doctor. He kind of did take advantage of this a little bit in a way. People were, were being helped and they really couldn't say anything bad about him. Even when there were rumors of him doing surgeries that weren't necessary, but he could, um, he could bill the insurance for him. Or sometimes they would find him looking at ladies in a way that a married man shouldn't. As the kids were growing older, Fern found herself with more free time. She took it upon herself to become a real socialite there in Circe. She'd offer their house up for events like wedding showers. Not to mention she loved a good game of bridge. At one point, she competed in the American Contract Bridge League. I didn't know that was a thing. Wow. Wow, I know. She's big time. One of the things that would end up leading to their marriage fizzling out was finances. Yes, the hospital was thriving, but Porter Sr. was not the best with money. So thankfully, Helen, Fern's sister-in-law, was overseeing all the finances. And you already know about the whole counterfeit thing. I often wonder if the house that caught on fire was an insurance thing. Porter had tried his luck in horse breeding and horse competitions. The Rogers had a farm that they started, but it was taking on quite a big loss. Porter was going into debt more and more, and Fern had had enough, so much so that she refused to sign off on anything that the bank would send her. He was probably, like, gambling on his horses, too. Well, he did like to gamble because Porter would go to Vegas sometimes. There you go. And... Not only were the finances causing some uh, in their marriage, uh, Fern learned that Porter was having an affair with a woman he worked with at the hospital. And he would take this woman 
to Vegas with him often. Porter was not the best in the casino, and he had racked up quite a debt there, too. The bank wanted their money. The casinos wanted their money. In 1964, Porter Jr. and Ann were informed of their parents' debt, and they took out $50,000 against themselves to help pay off some of it. Porter Sr. ended up selling the Rogers Hospital for another $50,000, but he had access to that and he pocketed it. So who knows where that even went. By 1974, Fern and Porter Sr. were separated, but it wasn't something the town really knew about quite yet. If they spoke, it was about their kids or something at the house or probably money. Fern was still living in their home, but Porter Sr. was staying at the Noble Motel up the road about a mile or so, which is probably why Betty Jean never saw him. Back to Thursday morning. Betty Jean had just phoned for an ambulance. Two men arrived promptly, and she met them at the door, informing them of her new discovery. She told them Fern must have been struck on the head. As the men go to check the body, one of them saw two bullet wounds just above her right temple. One of the EMTs called in from the radio to send the coroner, but he wanted to speak with him directly. He didn't want any unnecessary people to hear what was going on at the Rogers house. Like I said, everybody knew who the Rogers were. Not knowing about, like, the hush-hushness of all this, Betty had scooted off to call Porter Jr. to inform him about his mother. Alan Foster was the White County coroner at the time, and he arrived at 9 a.m. and conducted his initial examination on Fern's body. His notes read, The deceased has been shot through the head in two places in the right temple. There are powder burns on both entrances, which are about three-fourths of an inch apart. There is an empty, small-caliber shell located a short distance from the deceased's head. There is another empty shell in the entryway. There is one earring over to the left of the deceased approximately three feet away. After that, he declared it to be a crime scene. And Allen was the one to contact the police, and he radioed the chief, who was Dean Hunter at the time, more officers arrived following the call to the chief and then Porter Jr. in the rear. Well, that sounds bad. In the rear. In the rear. He was hit hard with reality once he spoke to the coroner. He said, I don't care how much it costs. I want it solved, even if it takes all the money I have. All this ruckus is happening at the Rogers house. And Porter Sr. is just having breakfast at Bill's Grill, which is right next to his motel. And I thought this was kind of odd because if the motel is a mile from his house and the restaurant is right next to the motel, it's like, wouldn't you wonder what all the sirens going off were about? Yeah, true. He was just about done eating when he was told there was a call for him. It was an employee at the hospital calling to tell him to go home because something happened to Fern. He pulled up to his house, and after chatting with some of the officers, he said something about how could someone do such a thing to another after a church service, of all things. And some people were like, huh? What is this man talking about? And Porter Sr., it sounded like he was making the assumption that whatever happened to Fern happened on a Wednesday evening. That she'd been there all night? Like, how did he know 
that it wasn't done on a different day. He was just assuming that it was a Wednesday. The Frenches had driven in to go to work for the day and were out running errands when all this was going on. They arrived at the house and were in such shock that something had happened to Fern. But they had groceries and things to unload, and with permission, they were allowed to do so. Mr. French was walking in, and he spotted Fern's purse out in the garden. He told Porter Jr. that he recognized it and all the contents that were spread out around the purse, and so the police decided to mark that as evidence. They didn't touch it yet. And there were so many people at this crime scene. There were neighbors, the county sheriff, the county coroner, Cersei's chief of police, several officers, the Rogers family, Betty, the French state troopers, third captains, investigators. I mean, everybody. This was a big deal. So that call to the coroner specifically to just talk to him. Did not <laughs> do, yes. It's a small town and they were yeah. a big deal in that town. So the investigators were up next. They begin going through the house. They are photographing the crime scene all around the home, gathering evidence as they went. They tried to walk through the house as if they were taking the same steps as the killer. And as they're doing so, they see a blood smear leading to the sunroom, and then there's a door that goes into the backyard. And as they're continuing to make this killer's walk, they see that this back door leads them to the garden, which leads to a back street where they think maybe a car could have been parked lying in wait. And the cut through the gardens where they see where this purse was. So Bob Reynolds, who's one of the investigators, he goes ahead, he picks up the purse, and he takes it inside. And as he does, he's a little baffled. Inside of Fern's purse is a diamond brooch that she wore every day. Inside of another pocket, he found a diamond watch. And both of these are very expensive, but the killer just dropped the bag and kept going. Like he was specifically looking for something else in the bag? Maybe so, yes. And later on, the uh, estimated value of both items was $30,000. Back then, too. Back then, too, yes. Dang. So now it's the evening of Thursday the 26th. The investigators ask Porter Sr. for his permission to search his office at the hospital. They're looking for a 25 caliber pistol. And that's exactly what they find in his desk drawer. Testing will later confirm that this is not the murder weapon, though. Fern's autopsy was Friday the 27th. Her cause of death was, as predicted, two gunshot wounds to the head Nothing else was found. She was laid to rest on Saturday the 28th. Finding Fern Rogers' killer is the top priority. Oxford State Police investigators head out Monday the 30th to interview the waitress at Bill's Grill, the one who was serving Porter Sr. that Thursday morning. She informed them that Porter was finishing up his breakfast when Peggy Hale joined him. She ordered and was eating when the call came in. The waitress said Porter Sr. rushed out he returned the next morning and was mourning Fern, and he was crying, but he was eating alone. And would you like to know who Peggy Hill is? The one she ta he takes to Vegas? Ding, ding. Mm -hmm. She would be Porter Senior Secretary, a.k.a. the side chick. She is 21, and he is 70, mind Shut you. Shut up. No. What? They met two years prior when she was working at Bill's Grill. She was raised in a very footloose-ish kind of household. You get what I mean when I say that? Kevin Bacon? Yeah, the movie. Mm -hmm. 
But she was always one to push the boundary. She always had a thing for older men. She had been involved with one of her high school teachers. Peggy and Porter Sr.'s relationship progressed rather quickly. At first, she was just using him to get diet pills. And then, (laughs) yes. And then a year later in 1973, she quit the restaurant and began working for him. And they went everywhere together, like Vegas. Peggy's parents were not thrilled, as you can imagine, about the whole situation. But if they continued to show their disapproval, they were going to lose Peggy because she said, don't make me choose between you and Porter. They were like, he could be our parents. Literally. Porter did have very strong feelings for Peggy. He wanted to divorce Fern and marry her. And Peggy didn't necessarily feel the same She cared and did have a love for Porter, but it wasn't the same way that he had felt about her. And like Peggy's parents, Porter's family wasn't thrilled either, but, you know, what can you do? By the summer of 1974, Peggy was practically living at the motel with Porter Sr., or she'd be staying at her parents. And she did have a trailer, but she didn't feel safe living on her own. Investigators talked to Peggy to get her accounts of the day of and the day prior. She went on to tell them that Wednesday, she and Porter left work after five. They bought her father a nice sports coat for his birthday and then took it to her parents' house to give it to him for his birthday. They were back at the hospital to pick up her car at 6.30 p.m. and then they go to the motel. They watched TV for some time. Porter Sr. went and got some food They ate, and at 11.30 p.m., Peggy left Porter at the motel and went back to her parents, and then she called him shortly before she went to bed. While looking into Porter Sr. and Peggy, investigators heard this rumor about Peggy owning a 25 caliber handgun and that she kept it in a car's glove box, and then the same source just happened to mention that Peggy shot a hole into the floor of her trailer. When confronted with all this, Peggy said, oh, I don't have a gun. They press her, saying things like, I'm sure it was for your protection. It's not safe for a pretty girl like you to be, you know, out and about. You can't protect yourself, blah, blah, blah. And Peggy again's like, I've never carried a gun and I've never owned one. Investigators know she's lying. They've already spoken to Milton, who is her father, and they know that Milton bought a 25 caliber in November of 1973. He was worried about Peggy living by herself in the trailer. Milton had loaded it for her and they did some target practice in the backyard shooting some trees in post. Peggy does finally admit to seeing the gun months, months, months before when the investigators implied that her father could be a suspect because he bought the gun. So, of course, Peggy's like, no, no, I, no, I know what you're talking about. Right. Not my daddy. Peggy told them back in April she was trying to load it and it jammed, so she let this man who she'd been seeing on and off named Jerry to take it to be looked at, and then she never got it back because Jerry conveniently died. Sure. Investigators still have that second rumor about the shot going into the floor of the trailer, and they asked her about this, and she she said, yes, it's true. She thought the safety was on and the gun went off and she shot into her kitchen floor. (laughs) Investigators asked if she would mind if they went and dug the bullet out and she didn't. Major Tudor, who was from the Arkansas State Police, requested a warrant for the trailer and he set two of his men to go get the bullet. 
While his men were gone, he continued with Peggy's interview. He has her retell the evening of the murder Wednesday night. He wanted to dig a little bit deeper, get a few more details. Like, for example, he asked what Porter had bought for dinner, and Peggy said, oh, he went to KFC. He got us some chicken and some sandwiches. And she says two sandwiches. And Tudor says, well, did you know it was actually four? Why would he need to buy more food unless there's three or more people with you? And Peggy's like, no, it was just Porter and I in the motel room that night. As Tudor wraps up the interview, he asked Peggy if she had a key to the Rogers home, and she did not. And she'd only been there one other time, and Fern was out of town. Peggy gave her consent to have her vehicle searched, and then the interview was over. By the time it had ended, the men that Major Tudor had sent to the trailer found the bullet and were rushing it to be analyzed and compared. Another investigator went to Peggy's home and asked her father if he could gather some of the shells from when him and Peggy were practicing. Captain Paul McDonald from the Arkansas State Police was in charge of firearms identification He's a man of science. He loved how firearms were kind of like fingerprints. Each one is unique. The same with shell casings. There are unique marks left by firing pins and the other pieces of the gun. He had the two bullets from Fern's head and the one from the trailer. The three matched each other. He had the two casings from the Rogers home and six from the Hale's backyard. More comparisons led him to positively match all eight casings. The gun used in Fern's death was the one that Milton had bought for his daughter, Peggy. Couple months have passed and it's now November, 1974 and Peggy Hell has officially been arrested and charged with capital felony murder. The police have the bullets in the casings matching the gun given to her. And they theorize that Peggy's motive was that killing Fern meant she and Porter Sr. could be married. One of the things investigators had learned over those past few months was that Fern refused to divorce Porter because she didn't want him to liquidate or dissolve his estate, and she didn't want him to go off and marry whomever he pleased because she was a bit petty and spiteful there at the end. I like it. Yes. It seemed like the police had a plan. They arrested Peggy at work, so they're at Porter Sr.'s office, which made Porter mad. He ended up following the police over to the jail to go uh, strain a few things out. He sat down with investigators. They advised him of his rights. And the first thing out of Porter's mouth was Peggy is wonderful and she isn't guilty and she needs to get back to work. The next thing they know, he's telling them about his Wednesday night. They didn't ask. He just kept on talking. Similar to the events that Peggy told them, but with more details is what he's telling them now. Like, the names of the patients in the rooms that they were in during his rotations. The investigators know that he deeply cared for Peggy, and they're going to use that against him. They said, well, Porter, if you think she is innocent, then why are you going to let her be charged for something that someone else did? Maybe someone like you. Porter is adamant that it wasn't him either. Again, they ask, why would he let the girl he loved carry the full weight of this charge? They say, Doctor, you know about Fern's death. Porter is standing his ground. He's, he, he keeps saying, I'm not involved either. And then the investigators ask him, what if we present a witness that said you did it? Porter replied, he's a damn liar. Or or she is, or, uh, or whoever it is. 
but that he was stuck in the investigator's head. Porter had quickly, you know, tried to act like that's not what he meant to say, but it was a little too late. Got to talking too much. He did. He did. While Porter was in interrogation, Milton was with his daughter. After some time, he stuck his head out and asked if Major Tudor was still there because Peggy wanted to talk to him. Something her father said must have sunk in, and Peggy told Tudor and the other investigator a few more details from that Wednesday night. Yeah, her dad was probably like, if you know who did it, you better tell him, otherwise you're going to be going to jail for a long time. She introduced them to the name of a man they never even considered was involved. His name was... Eugene. (laughs) Yeah, literally, yes, yes. His name was William Barry Kimbrell. He went by Barry. He was into real estate. He had actually been spoken to before by police because he's just a known associate of Peggy's. He and Peggy had hooked up a few times. He's older, so you know that's her type. Once Peggy and Porter started to see each other, her and Barry's fling just kind of tapered off. Barry was the one who sold Peggy and her father the trailer. He saw Peggy a few times since then with the doctor around town, and then Porter Sr. actually became his primary physician. In his statement, though, Barry said he had never met Fern and didn't know anything about her murder. Peggy is really spilling the beans now. Everything is about to come out. She started off saying how six months ago, Porter Sr., Barry, and herself were hanging out and chatting. It's a weird threesome, mm-hmm. I know. Gross. Porter Sr. said that divorce would be expensive, and in order to marry Peggy, it would just be cheaper to kill Fern. Barry say it would be like $6,000, and he knew this guy from St. Louis. The three of them talked about it on several different occasions. Barry said that he reached out to the guy... This so-called hitman ended up watching Fern for about a month, and in the end, he declined the job. He said he wouldn't even do this job for $100,000. Because she's a sweet old lady, or what? This man made it seem like killing her would be difficult and complicated. One time, he was watching Fern, and the police just wandered up to his vehicle to see what he was up to. Because remember, everybody knows the Rogers and Cersei. Peggy said Barry offered to do it. Porter Sr. agreed and explained that Wednesday night would be the best night to kill Fern. She played bridge, and then she would be home alone. Porter Sr. even explained to Barry how to open the locks on the back door properly and told him multiple times, top lock, bottom lock, top lock, bottom lock. Barry asked Peggy for her gun, and he's the one that came up with the story with the now-dead boyfriend, Jerry having the gun so it wouldn't go back to Peggy and her dad. Barry was even kind enough to file the serial numbers off so it wouldn't get tracked to Milton, Peggy's dad. Peggy told them about Barry attempting a couple of times on different Wednesday nights to do the job, but something always came up like a neighbor walking the dog or Helen, who, you know, works at the hospital for her sister-in-law. She liked to stay at the, the Rogers house with Fern on occasion. They were besties. Barry was trying to be in the house prior to when Fern would return from bridge and then he could just sneak up on her. You know, and sometimes Fern came home early, you know? You, you just never know. He's not a professional hitman. He's definitely not that. Finally, that Wednesday, September 25th, everything fell into place. 
the accounts that she was giving before and what Porter told them, they were remotely close to the truth. Like Peggy and Porter Sr. were at the motel, but they neglected to acknowledge Barry's presence. Like when Porter went for food and came back with way too much for two people, investigators were confused. Well, now they know Barry was actually there. One thing that both Porter and Peggy left out of their stories, and for good reason, was that that night in particular when they're hanging out at the motel, Peggy actually left with Barry and followed him in his car where he parked it behind a couple streets. And then she picked him up and dropped him off at the house. Oh, so she, so he knew that she was following him? Okay. Yes. So she drops him close to 10.30 that night, and we know that Fern wasn't home until after midnight because her friend had fallen and broken her wrist, so they were at the hospital. Peggy gets back to the motel, and then she goes to her parents' house calling Porter around midnight to establish her alibi and his alibi. So Barry was sitting there waiting for a long time. Yes. I'm surprised he didn't just leave thinking, like, she was never going to come home or Right, something. right. Peggy told them the next morning, Barry called her and he confirmed that he had killed Fern. He tried to grab her jewelry off of her, but got spooked by some headlights. So he snatched her purse and grabbed whatever he could real quick and he ran out the door. He ended up grabbing a stack of cashier's checks, which he ended up mailing to the sheriff's department, which like earlier in the book, they, you know, are opening their mail and it's just like a bunch of checks from Fern. And they're like, what are these doing here? Well, this is why. Because Barry didn't want them. So he just sent them to the police department. Just fucking burn them or something. I, exactly, yes. Peggy said Barry threw her gun away in some river between Cersei and Beebe where Barry lived. Obviously, later that day, they're off looking for Barry. Investigators stake out his apartment. They finally spot his car. They head to the door where Barry's mother greeted them. They go in, and one of them, knowing that Barry's kids are in the next room sleeping, took Barry into the bathroom to talk with him. After 10 minutes, both men emerge, and Barry lets his mom know that he's going to be going to the station to talk. And this is so sweet. His mother said, well, if you're going to keep him for some time, please take his medication with you. And the investigator patted his pocket going, I already have them, ma'am. Poor mom has no idea. <laughs> no, she doesn't. Bibi's chief of police, Doyle Stanley, arrived and he asked what was going on. Oh, Doyle rules. <laughs> he learned that Barry had just confessed to being the trigger man in Fern Rogers' murder, which came to a shock because he said, I don't believe that man could kill a rabbit. <laughs> I was like, that's a weird analogy. All three of them are going down then. Investigators transport Barry the 20 minutes or so from his home in BB to Cersei's police department, and the official interview started at 1 a.m. November 9th, 1974. He signed a statement of rights. He wrote out his confession. His story pretty much matched the one that Peggy had told them. At 3 a.m., investigators are off to the motel to pick up Porter Sr., they tell him that Barry just confessed and that Porter was the one that paid him to kill Fern. For 6000 bucks, Or was that how much they are going to pay the other guy? That's how much he was going to pay the other guy. When they told him it was Peggy that gave them all up, Porter was in disbelief. <laughs> 
Investigators asked him if he wanted to hear the recording from her interview, and he was like, yes. I could never believe she'd do a thing like that. What do you expect? She was going to go to prison for life. Right. Porter Sr. started to feel ill, and he was taken back to the motel at 4.30 a.m., agreeing to come back in later in the day to talk. No, he's going to kill himself. No, he sticks to his word. He does. He oh. sticks to his word, and he's back at the police station later that day to admit to his part. Porter Sr. started off by saying it was Peggy who brought up the fact that they wanted to get married and that they had to get rid of Fern to do so. Porter Sr. was skeptical of this so-called hitman. He never believed he existed, and he just figured Barry was pocketing all the money. Neither Peggy nor Porter Sr. ever saw or met this hitman, which is kind of why they figured he was fake. He admitted to giving Barry keys and telling him how to unlock the door. He said that Barry watched Fern long enough to know that Wednesday was the best night, even though Peggy said that Porter told her Wednesdays were the best nights. He went through that Wednesday night's events. He went for food. Peggy dropped off Barry and came back. His and Peggy's stories were lining up. Thursday morning while eating breakfast, Peggy did join him, but mainly to inform him that Barry had gotten the job done. Then he got the call from the hospital about Fern's death. He said the only reason I can explain why Fern's death had to happen was because, quote, I was hungry for Peggy, end quote. Huh. Huh. I know. He said Peggy's involvement was because she loved him. He said Barry's involvement was for money. Barry made at least three grand or more over the whole ordeal. At the end of his interview, Dr. Porter Rogers Sr. was arrested for capital felony murder. In the days following his arrest, Porter Sr. was evaluated by a psychologist. He was given multiple tests and concluded that he had some sort of organic brain disease based on some bizarre answers he gave. So he was placed in a facility for further testing and some treatment, which the man's 70, so it's no shocker that he might be fading or kind of forgetful at times. Porter Sr. spent two months at the Arkansas State Hospital, which is Little Rock's main mental hospital. And after that, he was found to be without any psychosis, so maybe he was just kind of faking with that psychologist. Barry Kimbrell was incarcerated and charged with capital felony murder on January 27, 1975. Days later, for a lesser sentence, Peggy Hale agreed to be a witness for the prosecution. Thursday, February 27, 1975, is the beginning of Porter Sr.'s trial, and the courthouse is packed with media. It's the biggest trial to happen especially in a small town at that point in the state of Arkansas. It had it all. It was including a scandalous affair with a younger woman, a socialite was murdered, a small-town man hired for murder. The book does a great job breaking down this trial day by day. There is 120 pages worth of coverage in the book. Obviously, I am not going to go through those. <laughs> Just know that on March 19, 1975, Dr. Porter Rogers Sr. was found guilty of first-degree murder. And the national papers went crazy. Headlines sometimes read something like, 70-year-old Arkansas doctor conspired with his young girlfriend to murder his wife. So think of that great publicity for our state. Wonderful. 
Porter Sr. was given a life sentence, which at his age could have been anything. Barry Kimbrell was also convicted of first-degree murder and given life in prison on July 23, 1975. Peggy Hale pleaded guilty for her testimony and given a charge of second-degree murder. She was given 21 years but could parole out in less than six, and that was on September 20th, 1975. Porter's attorney filed an appeal, got him out on a $750,000 bond, but then Porter goes back to trial on a federal level this time for insurance fraud, and he's found guilty and given 34 months in a federal prison in 1976. And then in 1977, that appeal for his murder conviction was upheld by the Arkansas Supreme Court. So now he's in for murder and insurance fraud. And just when you thought you heard the last of Barry Kimbrell, he's back in the news of March 1978. This guy escaped prison (laughs) and was on the run for 88 days. Wow. Impressive. He and another inmate stowed away on a vehicle and just left the facility. They got up underneath it or something? I don't know. I didn't go into specifics. He was captured in Little Rock, even though he claimed he traveled to several states before coming back home. So maybe if he never returned, then he might still be out there living a life. Peggy Hale received parole on August 29th, 1980, and she went on to live a full life. She learned from her past, and she accomplished many things. She got married. She had a son. So... She get married to an older gentleman? Remotely older. <laughs> she had her she had a son of her own with him and then she had several stepchildren and lots of grandbabies and a few great grandbabies. She was sixty nine when she passed on August twenty fourth, twenty twenty two. I was gonna ask if she was still alive, so So she passed away almost forty years to the day she was released. Porter Sr. passed away on November 4, 1980. He was 76. He died while being incarcerated. Barry Kimbrell passed away on May 3, 1992 at the age of 49. He spent nearly a week in the prison infirmary before his death. It was listed as natural causes. And that, that's the story of Fern Cohen Rogers' murder and then the Eugenes that did it. I don't know how else to end that, but the Eugene's involved. <laughs> yeah, their combined effort was definitely It was a major Eugene, Eugene. yes. Yeah, for yes. sure. Well, good job, love. That was entertaining, to say the least. Lord. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening and following along. Do us a favor and tell your friends about us. Leave us a review. Or just say hello on Instagram. It's Caught Red Podcast. That's P-A-W-D. Tell us about your pets. Don't forget, if you have any case recommendations, let us know and we'll add them to the list. Until next time, stay local, shop local. Murder local.